welcome to SNC's Critical Insights. I'm Annie Ostrager, a partner in the firm's litigation group, one of the co-heads of our labor and employment practice, and a member of our criminal defense and investigations group. With me today is my partner, Tracy High, who is also a co-head of our labor and employment group. We both focus on whistleblower litigation and investigations. Last week, we discussed recent developments related to the SEC's whistleblower program, and in January, our partner Camille Shields and I discussed whistleblower enforcement under the False Claims Act on an earlier episode of Critical Insights. We're back today to discuss the Supreme Court's June decision in United States on behalf of Polanski v. Executive Health Resources and implications for key TAM whistleblowers. We'll start by providing a brief overview of the FCA and its key TAM provision. Then we'll discuss the decision before touching briefly on United States on behalf of Schutte v. SuperValue, another recent Supreme Court decision implicating the FCA. Tracy, do you want to kick us off? Absolutely, Annie. The FCA imposes civil liability on anyone who presents false or fraudulent claims for payments to the federal government. The FCA also contains a key TAM provision that authorizes individuals to sue on the government's behalf as relators if they have original information of such a fraud. If a relator files a complaint under the FCA, government has 60 days to decide whether to intervene and proceed with the action. During this period, the case remains sealed. If the government decides to intervene, the action will be prosecuted by the government. The relator is allowed to continue in the action as a party, albeit in a secondary role. Even if the government decides not to intervene during the initial sealing period, The relator has a right to choose to continue with the action, thereby standing in the shoes of the government. The government also may intervene in an FCA key TAM action after the initial sealing period has passed upon a showing of good cause. For more on this, you can also listen to our earlier episode from January on this topic. And so now against that backdrop, Annie, would you please talk a little bit about what the relator may receive if the key TAM claim is successful? Yes, the key TAM provision allows a relator with original information of alleged fraud that results in a cognizable claim under the FCA to receive a portion of the recovery if their information results in a successful prosecution. So if the government intervenes and wins the suit, the relator can receive anywhere from 15 to 25% of the government's award. And if the government declines to intervene and the relator successfully pursues the claim alone, the relator can recover 25 to 30% of the award. Tracy, let's talk about Polanski now. So over 10 years ago, Jesse Polanski filed a key TAM action against Executive Health Resources, alleging that the company committed Medicare fraud. When he initially brought the action, the government declined to intervene during the sealing period, but Polanski pressed on. Case was litigated for years with an extensive discovery period during which the defendant, Executive Health Resources, demanded a whole host of documents for the government, leading to a variety of burdensome obligations and the potential disclosure of privileged documents that the government alleged were protected under the deliberative process privilege. Seven years into the litigation, the government decided that the burdens of the suit outweighed its potential value and moved to dismiss. The district court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania granted the government's motion, finding that the government had thoroughly investigated the costs and benefits of the case. The Third Circuit affirmed. Polanski appealed, 
and he argued that the government could not move to dismiss after declining to intervene in the case during the initial sealing period. So, Annie, will you tell us what happened when the case made its way to the Supreme Court? Yes. As we talked about in our January episode, two issues were before the court. The first was whether the government had the authority to dismiss an FCA key TAM suit after initially declining to intervene and then proceed with the action. Then the court was asked to decide what standard applies if the government had the authority to do that. On the first issue, the main dispute in the case was whether the government forfeits its right to dismiss the case if it chooses not to intervene during the initial seal period. The key provision in the FCA allows the government to dismiss a claim even if the relator objects as long as a court finds after a hearing that the settlement is fair and reasonable. This paragraph, however, does not contain any language that specifies when it applies, and the FCA provides that the court may not limit the status and rights of the relator during this process. The government argued that because the relevant FCA provision doesn't specify when the government can move to dismiss a relator's suit, it should be able to move to dismiss at any time, regardless of whether or not it sought to intervene. Polanski, on the other hand, argued that the government should only be able to move to dismiss if it assumed primary responsibility for the action, which he posited would only happen if the government intervened during the initial seal period. The majority opinion, written by Justice Kagan, held that the government may move to dismiss an FCA action whenever it has intervened in the action, whether during the initial seal period or later on. However, the majority firmly stated that the government may not move to dismiss an FCA action in which it has never intervened. Tracy, can you talk a little bit about the court's reasoning? Yes, Annie, I certainly can. The majority landed somewhere in the middle of each side's proposed interpretation of the statute. First, Justice Kagan rejected the government's intervention is a relevant argument relying partially on the structure of the statutory provisions and reasoning that if the government had never intervened, it had never become a party to the suit at all. Justice Kagan also engaged in textual analysis to argue that the relevant paragraph of the FCA grants the government the right to become the primary conductor of the suit, even if it declines to intervene in the first instance. Annie, let's now talk about the standard of review question. On this issue, the government again argued that it has essentially unfettered discretion to dismiss, while Polanski proposed a novel form of arbitrary and capricious review with a burden-shifting component. The Supreme Court settled on a solution that neither party had articulated, but had been proposed by the Third Circuit, that Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 41A should govern in these situations. 41A requires a court order for dismissal when the defendant has served an answer or a summary judgment motion, but only a notice of dismissal before that. In so reasoning, Justice Kagan explained how the application of 41A differs in two ways in the FCA context. First, the government must provide notice and an opportunity for a hearing before dismissal can be granted, and second, the court must consider relator's interests during its review. That's right, Annie. The majority found that the district court, in granting the government's motion to dismiss Polanski's suit, got this one right. In its decision to dismiss the case, the government had considered the significant costs of future discovery, including possible disclosure of privileged documents, 
and explained in detail why the case had little chance of success on the merits. Even though Polanski argued that the government was leaving a large amount of potential recovery on the table, the majority found that this competing assessment should not outweigh the government's reasonable analysis of the suit's costs and benefits. The majority's opinion means that Polanski has expended years of time and effort and yet can no longer pursue his claim. Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Justice Barrett, filed a brief concurring opinion, joining the majority in full while encouraging further discussion of the constitutional arguments posed by the dissent. Which brings us to the lone dissenter in this case, Justice Thomas. In his dissenting opinion, Justice Thomas wrote that he would hold that the structure of the FCA's KETAM provisions do not permit the government to unilaterally dismiss the suit unless the government intervenes during the initial seal period. First, Justice Thomas expressed concern with the majority's interpretation of the statute, opining that a relator's status as the primary party in a KETAM suit is granted once the initial seal period ends, and that the FCA explicitly forbids limiting the relator's status and rights. Justice Thomas also relied on the statutory history of the FCA to argue that historically, government intervention was either not allowed or was limited under the statute. Justice Thomas also raised some other questions as well. He stated that conducting civil litigation for vindicating public rights of the U.S. is considered an executive function that may be discharged only by people who are officers of the United States under the Appointments Clause of Article II of the Constitution. Because relators are not appointed as officers of the United States, Justice Thomas argued that KETAM suits in general are inconsistent with Article II, even if they have been historically accepted over centuries. Additionally, Justice Thomas noted that the Necessary and Proper Clause in Article I would not allow Congress to partially assign some of the government's recovery award to relators if a KETAM provision in general is constitutionally suspect under Article II. And he also explained that the Property Clause under Article IV may grant Congress authority to allow the partial assignment of government damages, but ultimately left this issue for lower courts to consider. Another recent FCA case from the Supreme Court that we should discuss, and as you mentioned earlier, Annie, is Schutte versus SuperValue. Would you talk to us a bit about the facts of that case? Of course. First, the SuperValue case is actually a consolidated case where the court combined two FCA QTAM cases from the Seventh Circuit, Schutte and Proctor v. Safeway. In the initial actions, the relators claimed that defendants SuperValue and Safeway, two supermarket and pharmacy chains, had been overcharging Medicare and Medicaid programs for years by seeking reimbursement for drug prices that were much higher than their discounted usual and customary prices. The relators claimed that the companies reported to the government higher prices for products than the amount for which the products were typically sold. At issue in both cases is the proper standard of scienter under the FCA. Under a specific provision of the FCA, two elements are needed to prove an FCA violation. First, that the defendant filed a false claim, and second, that the defendant had knowledge of the claim's falsity. In other words, the relators claim that the defendant's reported prices satisfied an objective knowledge standard but would not reflect the defendant's subjective knowledge of their usual and customary prices. 
When the cases reached the district court, the court ruled against SuperValue and Safeway on the first element, holding that their discounted prices were their usual and customary prices, and that by not reporting them, the companies submitted claims that were false. However, the court granted summary judgment for SuperValue and Safeway on the scienter element, holding that the companies did not act knowingly, so could not be in violation of the FCA. In affirming the SuperValue case, the Seventh Circuit held that the company's actions were consistent with an objectively reasonable interpretation of the phrase usual and customary, so the subjective thoughts and beliefs of SuperValue were irrelevant. The Seventh Circuit then applied this holding in its subsequent review of the Safeway case. The Supreme Court granted cert to consider the scienter element of an FCA claim. SuperValue and Safeway, in arguing for the objective Seventh Circuit standard, appealed to the vagueness of the usual and customary phrase that was at issue in the case and relied on cases where courts imposed objective scienter requirements for non-FCA statutes. So in light of all this, Tracy, where did the court come out? In a unanimous decision by Justice Thomas, the court held that the FCA's scienter element refers to the defendant's knowledge and subjective beliefs, not to what an objectively reasonable person may have known or believed. The court explained that the scienter element of the FCA, which requires either actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or recklessness, closely tracks the traditional common law scienter requirement for general fraud claims, which ordinarily depend on a subjective inquiry into the defendant's state of mind. Additionally, the court reasoned that the specific scienter terms included in the FCA focus primarily on what the party accused of misconduct thought and believed at the time of the misconduct. The court then vacated the Seventh Circuit's judgments below and remanded for further review consistent with its opinion. So Annie, what do you make of these two decisions and their potential impact on FCA enforcement and whistleblowing in this space? Well, Tracy, we saw a lot of activity from the Supreme Court on FCA, KETAM, and whistleblower actions this term, and you can read more about these cases in our Supreme Court Business Review. As illustrated by the Polanski case, future potential relators should bear in mind that once the government has intervened in a KETAM case, it can move to dismiss at any time, even beyond the original statutory period. Although the potential remains that a relator can collect significant awards under the FCA, the relator's path to success may seem more turbulent after the court's decision. On the other hand, while the Polanski decision gives the government more leeway when deciding when to intervene, the court rejected the intervention as irrelevant argument, meaning the government will have to intervene if it wants to move to dismiss. That's right, Annie. And it's interesting to note how three of the justices, Thomas in his dissent and Kavanaugh and Barrett in concurrence, are wary of the constitutionality of key TAM provisions in general. That there are three justices concerned with key TAM provisions may signal that the future of key TAM actions in this space and broadly may shift. Finally, the super value case clarifies the scienter element needed to prove an FCA claim by rejecting the Seventh Circuit's objective standard and allowing a finding of scienter on subjective knowledge. This new clarity regarding the scienter required to provide an FCA claim is an important development for would-be relators. 
However, relators should be aware that demonstrating the defendant satisfied a subjective scienter standard may create lengthier and more burdensome discovery processes than an objective, reasonable person standard. Thanks, Tracy. That's right. And as always, employers who rely on government contracts as part of their business should remain up to date on the latest federal and state requirements for government contractors, treat seriously claims brought by internal whistleblowers, and seek advice when faced with a potential KETAM litigation. The KETAM provision of the FCA still remains a powerful tool for prosecutors to encourage whistleblowers to come forward, and it remains important for clients to understand how these recent decisions may impact the practical application of this law. Thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.sulcrom.com. 